Good morning, everyone. Well, as Bill said, this is the third and final message in our Randy is on vacation series that we've been calling Above the Noise. And Thomas brought the first two messages, and uh, in them, um, he whipped out the big old whiteboard, you know, and he drew this very elaborate, sophisticated illustration to demonstrate a really important point. So he explained how there's God, and then there's us, and then between us is noise. And he said, eh. You know, to make his point, noise. So that's what we're talking about in this series, this little series that we're concluding today. You see, God's intention when he created human beings was to have, uh, to have us live in this face-to-face kind of relationship with him where, where we could see him and talk to him and, and actually just be with him. The kind of relationship that the first humans experienced with him at the very beginning of creation in the garden. But the problem is that this kind of face-to-face relationship with our creator, it was broken in the garden, and it's been broken ever since. Now, the good news we share all the time is that Christ, our creator, came to restore what was broken. And by the way of the cross, through his life and his death and his resurrection on this planet, Christ has made the way for us to come back into this kind of relationship that, that we were each made for with our creator He's made restoration of this relationship possible to anyone, anyone at all who wants it, if we just simply return to him in trust. But even for those of us who have done that, we have returned and and this relationship with our creator has been restored through trust still. Still often we find that this relationship that is just disrupted by all the noise in our lives The noise, those just day-to-day demands and deadlines that are placed on us, the requirements and the requests that come our way, people wanting our time and our attention, overloaded schedules, to-do lists. And Thomas talked about an experience that I think is all too familiar to all of us. It's about how in the face of all the noise in our lives and in the tyranny of the urgent, we lose sight of what's most important. And don't we know it all too well? I mean, how easily and how often urgent trumps important, doesn't it? Too often we live in response to what's urgent, to what's demanding our time and our attention and even our affection, rather than in response to what's most important. So we find ourselves oftentimes desiring to rise above the noise of our lives. And we so want a deeper experience with God. But how do we stop living in response to the urgent demands and instead live in response to God and the relationship that we were created for? How do we do that? Well, you you may not realize this or you may have never thought of it this way, but, but that's what spiritual practices are all about. You know, in church, we always learn about what do we need to do. We need to pray. We need to read our Bibles. We need to serve. We need to get in a growth group. Maybe you've even learned about some other things called spiritual disciplines with things like fasting and and solitude, and there's a whole bunch more of those. These are not meant to be like a religious to-do list. These are not things that we check off as activities that score points with God. That's not the point of them at all. The point is that they help us break through the noise of our lives. They help us rise above the noise of life so that we can experience a more deeper connection with Christ our creator, a more deeper connection with God that we were meant for and that really many of us long for. 
One of the most powerful and unique ways we've talked about in this series that God invites us to rise above the noise is a practice that we've, we've just kind of lost in our Western culture, and it's this, singing. But it's actually more than just singing, it's actually singing together. But let's be honest as we sit here. I mean, for some of us, this whole singing in church thing, it's just a little weird, and it's kind of awkward, you know? I mean, where else in our lives do we do this? Where else do we just gather with people, we get together, and we sing some songs? I mean, even when I meet up with my West Virginia cousins at the Hillbilly Heaven Bar in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, on our family reunion weekend every year, even so, we don't sing together. I mean, there's karaoke, so somebody's singing, but they're singing by themselves, and the rest of us are just going, yee-haw, you know? I mean, we don't actually sing together. So it's something that just seems a little bit odd, you know, when you think about it. And I don't think we really get it. So therefore, we kind of maybe feel a little bored, uncomfortable, maybe even irritated. And so we just plan to arrive to church on the last song. Right? Raise your hands. No, you don't have to. We already know who you are. So... I snorted. Did y'all hear that? I snorted. My whole, it's a West, my family, we all snort. When my niece was born and she was just like three months old, she snorted and we were all like, oh, she's a key sucker. She's a, anyhow, even those for those, those of us who do enjoy the singing part of the service each week, my guess is that for most of us, maybe not all of us, but probably most, it's more really of this one-on-one -on -one experience with us and God. I mean, it doesn't really have much, if anything, to do with the other people in the room, right? It's just sort of my special time with God. But Thomas shared a lot of really interesting stuff about singing together, how it does so much more than just make us feel awkward, he said. So he shared about how the information and the emotions and experiences that we get from singing, how they're stored in a way and in a place in our brain that makes it practically unforgettable, and it can actually be passed down to generations. It's amazing. Studies have shown this, how singing together releases endorphins that encourage our immune systems and they produce physical and emotional healing. Singing together brings about healing in our lives and makes us healthier people, emotional healing and physical healing. And how singing together releases a chemical into our bodies called oxytocin, it's known as the bonding chemical. It's what makes it's what makes us feel connected and, and a trusting of one another, and it contributes to this development of a group identity. So it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, that our God, our creator, for thousands of years, he's invited his people to sing together. In Ephesians 5, it says, when you meet together, sing when you meet together, sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as you praise the Lord with all your heart. Are we doing that for God or for ourselves? It's as if he knows something about us that we don't know about ourselves. He knows how something is really, really good for us, even though we are kind of clueless about what it's all about. Perhaps the most powerful thing about singing together is is how the experience, it helps us rise above the, the noise of our lives and it helps us discover who God is and whose we are. You see, in the first message, Thomas talked about this song, The Great I Am, that we sang this morning. In this song, it reminds us that Christ 
Christ is the great I am. He is the great almighty creator of the universe without beginning or without end. But if we left it there and we didn't learn anything more about God, well, that would actually be kind of scary. You know, it would be intimidating and we would be afraid of this big, awesome God. So in the second message, we discovered how the song, No Longer Slaves, again, that we sang today, how it reminds us that in addition to being the great I am, he is also our father. We're his children. His children. I am a child of God. And because we belong to him, there's nothing at all any of us can or ever need to do to earn his love. You're fine because you're mine. We said last week, we are loved simply because we belong to him. We're his children. So through the songs that we sing, we discover who God is and, and whose we are. But when we go a step further beyond from just discovering to actually responding to who God is and whose we are, well, then it's more than just singing. It's something we call worship. Worship. Worship comes from the old English word worth-ship, and it refers to our response to the worth of something or something, someone or something. And here's the thing about we human beings, and we really got to let this one sink in and think about this. This is serious. Every single one of us, every single human being, we will worship someone or something in our lives. And it will have a profound impact on our lives and a profound impact on who or what we become. Wait a second. Let me say that differently. Let me say it a little bit more accurately. It's actually this. You and I, every single human being, we are worshiping someone or something in our lives right now. And it is having a profound impact on our lives and on who or what we are becoming. We're in process. So the big question is this. Are we aware of who or what we're worshiping? Are we aware of it? And just because, let's make no mistakes, just because we're sitting in church just because we may identify ourselves as a Christian, it doesn't automatically mean that we are truly worshiping God. So, are we even aware of who or what we're truly worshiping in these lives of ours? So after a long review of all the highlights of the last two Sundays, it kind of just boils all down to this, to this point. Worship is our response to who God is and whose we are. Which brings us now to this really important question in this final message, and the question is this. Well, what exactly does that response look like? If worship is a response to who God is and whose we are, what does that look like? We've been talking about singing and how important it is, so is that the point we're trying to make? You know, that singing is worship, that they're one and the same, so if you're singing, you're worshiping, and if you're not singing, then whoa, woe to you, because then you're not worshiping. That's not what we're saying at all. As we said, singing together has this great purpose and this value, but in and of itself, singing is not worship. It can lead to worship, it can help us worship, but by itself, it is not worship. You see, worship isn't about what we sing. Worship is about how we live, how we live this life we've been given. Romans 12, it just says it so powerfully and so clearly. It says, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, 
I mean, when you look at God and you could just consider what a merciful God, all his forgiveness, when you really stop and think about that and let that sink in, then it says, I urge you then, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, this is your true worship. See, in the Old Testament, the Jews sacrificed animals as part of their worship to God. Now, I mean, that just sounds kind of crazy to us. But the ancient world functioned very different in many ways. But these sacrifices, they had a purpose. They were designed, on one hand, to illustrate the seriousness of sin. You know, when we, we do things that, that go against God and his ways, it brings about destruction in our lives. It, 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 it's, it's death to who we were created to be. So there was this picture for them every time of, of the consequences of sin. It leads to death and destruction in our own lives. But it also was pointing them to the coming Messiah, to Christ, the one who would sacrifice himself for all mankind for all time. And it's fascinating that not long after Christ's sacrifice, the Jewish temple was destroyed. And from that time and right up until the today, there's been no animal sacrifices in that temple of any kind, anywhere. So it's fascinating. Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all. So as New Testament followers of Christ now, our true worship now is to sacrifice ourselves, but not in death, in life. How we live our lives, that is worship. That is our response to who God is and whose we are. There's this uh, writer by the name of Josh Ross, and he wrote this. He said, Christians have asked this question for far too long. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? But he says, we need to start asking a different question. If you wake up tomorrow morning, what will you live for? What will you live for? Worship is our response to who God is and whose we are. And this response isn't merely something we sing or something we say or something we do, some little activity. The response is how we live. And how we live is about seeing life in a different way, desiring a different way, and then actually living a different way. And so for the rest of our time, we're just going to kind of unpack those three things. So let's first look at seeing in a different way, seeing life in a different way. Do you know how most people view life? Most people view life like this, whether they realize it or not. They view it as that. Anybody know, go back to your math days. Anybody remember what that's called? Line segment. Good for you. We got a little prize for you after service today. And it's simply, you know, one point is when we're born and then we kind of live this life. And if we're really lucky, we might maybe make it to 100, you know, and then we die. Game over. It's all done. And if that's our view of life, something happens that we're not necessarily aware of, but it's true. We're driven by fear and desperation. The writer of Hebrews explains it this way. He says, all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We don't necessarily think about dying, but we're still a slave to the fear of dying. Because you see, if this time on earth is all there is, then I kind of live with this fear because this is it. There's nothing else. So my desperation drives me in this time between the dots that I, can, I just want to get as much pleasure as I possibly can, the, as much positive experiences in this life, and I want to avoid as much pain as I can. That's my life goal. Fear and desperation. I just hope to make it the best run that I possibly can. But once we begin living in response to who God is and who God is and whose we are, 
then our view of life, it shifts. And it becomes this instead. Anybody remember what that's called? A ray. A ray, that's right. And in this case, the dot, the dot represents life on the earth, our present life right now. It begins, it ends, it's brief, even if we live to be 100. But however, from that dot, a line extends, it goes on forever, and that line is eternity. Eternity. <clears throat> also known, we typically say, heaven. Heaven. As a writer and pastor, Randy Alcorn, he writes a lot about eternity and eternal perspective. And he says this, he says, as believers in Christ, this life is the preface. It's not the book. It's the preliminaries, not the main event. It's the tune-up, not the concert. I kind of think of it like this. It's like the trailer for Pitch Perfect 3. It's not the actual movie. It's just getting us ready and really excited for, for when it's coming out on December the 22nd, the actual movie. How many are with me? You know, Pitch Perfect 3. You're out there, I know. We should make a pitch perfect club, shouldn't we? We don't sing, we just watch the movies. <laughs> so a few years ago, a study showed that 72% of Americans say that they believe in heaven. So they believe it exists, but do they live for it? You know, my guess is that, that there are many that believe there's a heaven because we want to believe there's something after this time on the earth that, that we don't just uh, cease to exist. And we really hope it's a good place. So we like believing in this idea of heaven, but few actually live from the perspective that what is to come is far more important, far more exciting than anything that this world offers us. Worship is much more than simply believing that there is a heaven. Worship is living for it. Living for the line, not for the dot. And it's just like the song we sang for now, we're living on the edge of heaven. We're just on the edge. But that doesn't frighten us. It actually excites us because we're able to gaze into the world that we were created for. Our true home, the scripture says. Heaven is our real home where we will have that face-to-face -face relationship with God, the one that our souls long for. One of Jesus' disciples, John, the apostle John, he once stood on the edge of heaven. And he was given the privilege of having this vision from God. And, and God said, he told him, write it down. He says, everything you, I'm going to show you, write it down so that it could be court, recorded in the scriptures that we have today. What a, what a blessing that is to us, right? So he said this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's talking about a time still yet to come. And he says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them just like it was back in the garden. That's what's coming, folks. And it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And when I read that, you know what? I, I think that's literal. I don't think that's just some kind, of, some kind of figure. I think our father is going to scoop up every one of us, his children, and he's going to wipe away the tears. All the tears from the pain and sorrow this life dished out and he says there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain all these things they're gone forever and the one sitting on the throne said look I'm making everything new and he said to me John says he said write this down for what I tell you it is trustworthy and it is true 
And again, what a blessing that we have it in writing, what John wrote some 2,000 years ago. You know, sometimes, a couple of times a year, I have, to, um, I have to do a funeral. Hardest things that you do as a pastor. And I will often read this portion of Scripture. Well, not often. Every time I read this portion of Scripture. Um, but I'm so aware, and, and sometimes I've been very, very made aware, that there are people who are there at that funeral attending the service who they don't believe in God. They don't, have, they don't have any kind of, and they even maybe kind of scowl at the idea of a God and so forth. So when I read it, you know, I let people know, hey, this is trustworthy and true to me, no doubt, this is truth. But I recognize some of you out there don't see it that way. But let me just give you something to think about. What if it is true? What if? Would that not be good news or what? Can you just consider it for that reason alone? When we worship with our life, that's what we live for, the eternal, perfect kingdom to come, the place that truly is home. So we sang, as we sang Edge of Heaven, we sang, for now we may feel pain, for now we stand in faith. For now we feel pain, but we stand in faith. And again, that's what worship looks like, standing in the midst of the pain and the hardship and the difficulties and we just stand in faith, say, we continue trusting our God. We keep on trusting and following our Christ, uh, Christ our creator. That's what it means to stand in faith. And that, folks, is worship. That is worship. First Corinthians says, stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Because we're not living for now. We're living for the promise of what is to come. So through the pain and the sorrow and the confusion and all the brokenness, for now... We'll just keep trusting, standing in faith. Worship is our response to who God is and whose we are, and this response is how we live our lives, and it starts with seeing life from a whole, in a whole different way, a whole different perspective, from an eternal perspective. This isn't all there is. But not only do we see life in a different way, we also desire a different way. You see, when you think about heaven and all, you know what's so exciting about heaven? It's perfect. It's perfect. And you and I long for perfect. It's everything we want in this life. I mean, come on. I mean, it's really cool to even imagine how stunningly beautiful the place is going to be. You know, that's going to kind of blow us away. But more than that, more than that, can we begin to imagine how, amaz how amazing it will be to live in a place that is all good, completely and utterly good, a place where nothing bad ever happens again. It's the place of no more, where there is no more pain or sorrow. There is no more hatred or violence, nothing. It doesn't exist. There is no more sickness or death, and there's no more crying. I mean, can you imagine a world where a life in the future when you never ever want or need to cry again? And can you imagine a place where everyone, every single person is loved and respected and valued? The same. And they don't have to do anything to get that just because. No one is ever mistreated. No one is ever belittled or taken advantage of or harassed or discriminated against or hurt in any way whatsoever. Nobody. It's perfect. 
And you know what makes it perfect? Heaven is a perfect place because Psalm 1830 tells us the reason. God's way is perfect. His way, unlike earth right now, God's perfect ways rule the heavenly realm, the kingdom of heaven. Man's imperfect ways rule the earth. And we see what that gets us, right? When we gaze upon the beauty of heaven, we are simply seeing the beauty of God's ways. When life is lived God's way, the way he designed life, the way he designed the planet, the way he designed the universe, the way that he designed you and me, then life is perfect and it is beautiful. And so true worship is when we desire a different way for life. We see the beauty and the goodness of God's perfect ways, and so we desire what Jesus the way he once taught us to pray, pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our desire. We long to bring heaven to earth as much as possible, whenever possible, wherever possible. We long to bring God's way to this realm as much as possible. You see, when we forgive somebody, when we're generous, when we serve someone, when we help someone in need, when we are kind, when we are patient, when we withhold judgment, when we love in big ways and when we love in small ways, we are in those moments bringing heaven to earth because those are God's beautiful, loving, and perfect ways. A couple years ago, I um, had a growth group and there's one particular gal in the group, her name's Lorraine, and um, I just love Lorraine's heart. And, and you know, Lorraine had kind of grew up on, in, with a religious background that kind of taught one way, and then she'd kind of gone away, and she was coming back to church again and kind of starting over, if you will. So she sat in the group that night, and, and by the end of it, she just says, okay, I just got a question. Can someone just tell me the rules? What, what are the rules that I have to follow to be a Christian? Can you just, I'd like to leave here tonight with a list of the rules. And, and she wasn't kidding. She really wanted to say, you know, here's the list. Do these things. This makes you a Christian. But it's not about the rules. It's about ways. Following Christ, worshiping God, it isn't about keeping God's rules. It's about desiring God's ways. God's, God's ways are perfect and they're beautiful and they're good for everyone. So as worshipers, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said, for, for his good and perfect ways. We want them. We want them in our lives and we want them in everyone's lives. On the edge of heaven, we long for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our heart's desire. But desire doesn't mean much if we don't actually do something with our desires, you know? I mean, I can desire to be physically fit and healthy, but that desire means nothing if I don't begin doing certain things when it comes to how I eat and exercise, right? Just, just makes sense. I can desire to be financially healthy and out of debt, but that desire means nothing if I don't take Financial Peace University and start actually handling my money the way Dave Ramsey tells me to, right? <laughs> Y'all know what I'm saying. Listen to this. If desire doesn't lead to doing then it really doesn't do us any good, right? If desire doesn't lead to doing, then it doesn't do us any good. In worship, we see a different way, we desire a different way, and we also live a different way. We do it. And in Romans 12, we read earlier, 
Let's repeat what we read. Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. But look at what it goes on to say in verse 2 about what this true worship looks like, how it actually works. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. It all starts right here in the way we think, so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God for you is good. You can prove and practice. Folks, to me, this is one of the most powerful portions of Scripture because if we actually do what it says, it will profoundly impact our lives in a good and positive way. And through our doing life God's way, we'll prove to ourselves how good it is and we'll demonstrate to others how God's ways are good and perfect. I can remember my own life discovering this verse and as I started my life to change and I started living according to God's ways instead of the ideas, my ways for life, it just was like, bam, I was like, yeah, this is better. This is far better. Proving to ourselves. It's demonstrating for others that God's ways are good and perfect. See, true worship says this, just like we sang. It says, take this world, take it all, give me Jesus. Take my life, everything, give me Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? Jesus came and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? The way. Give me the way anytime. The good, the beautiful, the perfect way of Jesus every time. True worship is more than just desiring God's way, but it's living God's way. No longer allowing ourselves to be molded and shaped by a world that doesn't want God, doesn't want his ways, but instead being remolded and reshaped into who God created us to be. His restored image coming to life in us. You know, the scripture tells us in Genesis, we're made in the image of God, but that image, it's been kind of buried and marred and distorted and broken in so many ways, but saying he's going to restore that image. We're going to bring it to life. So true worship is this. True worship is I am pleased to live how you want. It's not that I'm looking for the rules and making sure I'm just, you know, doing the right thing so I can become a Christian or get saved or go to heaven or whatever. I'm pleased to live how you want, my God. Your law is etched into my heart and in my soul. True worship is this, you are good. You are the source of good. So therefore, God, train me in your goodness. Train me. I want to be like you. True worship is this, show me your ways, not my ways anymore, your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope. My hope is in you all day long. Worship is life's response to who God is and and whose we are, and worship, it's how we live. It's how we live. Remember in the beginning, we said that all of us are worshiping someone or something in our lives, and it is having a profound impact on our lives, on who or what we are becoming. Well, look at this, these powerful words from a, a Bible scholar named N.T. Wright that really brings this home. I'm going to go through it slowly. It's long, but I want it to sink in to each one of us. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and they worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. 
One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. Can we let that one sink in? You become like, I become like what we worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. So he gives us some powerful examples. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it. And they increasingly, listen to this, treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories. And increasingly, get this, treat other people as actual or potential sex objects, not as human beings. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it, and they treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and, and of those whose lives they touch. Who or what we are worshiping, it has a profound impact on our lives it has a profound impact, whether we realize it or not, on the people in our lives, and a profound, not even impact, it is defining who or what we are becoming. It is molding and shaping the person we are becoming. So when we worship the one who created us and saved us, the Lord Jesus, it doesn't just change our lives, it changes us. And it impacts the people around us. Colossians 3, it says, you have now become a new person. You are being made more like Christ, the one who made you. As we worship Christ, we become just like him, more and more like him. Good, kind-hearted, merciful, forgiving, tender, gentle, humble, loving, beautiful people, beautiful people. Worship is our response to who God is and whose we are. And the response is huge. It's how we live our lives. It's how we see life in a different way. It's how we desire a different way. And it's how we actually live a different way as we are here on the edge of heaven. As we close out, I want to invite the worship team to join me here on stage. Okay? After talking about worship and, and singing over the past three Sundays, I just have this new appreciation for this team of people. And it's not that I think what they do is more important than what anyone else does. I mean, they're no more important than someone who serves in the nursery or the first impression team or the, or the people who make the coffee. I mean, if we want to talk about important, we know who's important, right? It's the coffee people, so no doubt. And it's not that what they do is any harder than what others do. I mean, if you want hard, go serve in the, in the toddler room or the middle school room. They're kind of the same. Just saying. But what I have is this new perspective or, or this new appreciation um, for what God has called them to do. Folks, he hasn't called them to perform for us. And trust me on this one, please do. That is not the desire of anyone on this team. I know these folks. And you know, there's probably no other serving team in a church where a person's kind of their motives are more questioned, judged, and scrutinized, you know? It's unfortunate. But I can tell you, none of these people are here just for a stage to perform. They're here simply because they love music and they want to help us 
sing together. Because our God says it's really important for us to do that. As Ephesians said, when you meet together, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as you praise the Lord with all your heart. It's more for us than it is for God. These folks are followers of Christ, just like me and you. They have good days and they have bad days. They have their joys and they have their struggles and their sorrows. Some days they feel really close to God and some days where he seems just a million miles away. But like us, they long to rise above the noise and experience a deeper connection and relationship with God and truly worship him with their lives, not just in song with their lives. This team is one of FCF's circles. We've been talking a lot lately about circles, the, these smaller groups where you're, you're known and you grow together. So they not only serve together, they also hang out and they, they have fun together and they've started something really cool this semester. They're doing a growth group together. They are going through, they are one of the discipleship groups at FCF. And so they meet on Monday nights apart from their rehearsal and they just study and learn and grow together. And as they sit in someone's living room to learn and grow together, it's not uncommon um, for someone to bring out the guitar and they begin singing together. And so we wanna close this service today by inviting you into the living room. Let's make it close, let's make it intimate. Let's all gather in this living room circle together, not to watch, not to listen, but as we are here on the edge of heaven to sing together. For now we may feel pain For now we stand in faith For now 
job. Let's pray together. God, how we thank you for this gift of singing together and how I hope and pray that, you know, after these three weeks of um, all that we've learned, that we will have this new and deeper understanding of your purpose in this singing together experience and that each one of us will give ourselves more fully to this gift and opportunity and experience that we have each Sunday. And I pray that together as your church, as we sing together, that we will rise above the noise and we will more clearly see and understand, uh, discover, and respond to who you are and whose we are, your children, and that we truly will live lives of worship. And we pray this in the name of the one that we want to be like, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>